Welcome to episode 10 of the China Path podcast. I'm James Scullin from the Australia China Business Council. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, please subscribe in the iTunes store to receive a free fortnightly episode. If you have been listening to the podcast, you've certainly heard a lot about CHAFTA, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. In episode eight, we covered how companies can access CHAFTA, and now, after more than two years since the agreement came into effect, we look at what the real impact and results of CHAFTA has been thus far. Back in October 2017, I spoke with Austrade Senior Trade Commissioner for North China and Minister Councillor Dan Tebbit. In our discussion, Dan discusses the role of Austrade in China and the impact of CHAFTA in export goods, services, investment, tourism, and education. He also reveals CHAFTA's high utilization rate with Australian companies, addresses how CHAFTA has made Australia a more attractive business partner in the eyes of Chinese businesses, and the overall maturity of the China market. Dan Tebbit has been Austrade Senior Trade Commissioner for North China and Minister Councillor at the Australian Embassy in Beijing since December 2015. Previously, Dan served as Austrade Senior Trade Commissioner and Deputy Consul General for Hong Kong and Macau, as well as Austrade Senior Trade Commissioner in Moscow. Before joining Austrade, Dan worked as a journalist, editor, communications consultant, business analyst, and speechwriter. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm here today with Dan Tebbit, Senior Trade Commissioner for Austrade in the Australian Embassy here in Beijing. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Dan, for the uninitiated, can I just get you to explain what is Austrade and what services does it offer Australian companies here in China? So, Austrade is the Australian Trade and Investment Commission.、Um, we are a statutory body of the Australian federal government, set up in the 1980s, but we actually have a heritage going back to the 1920s.、Mm. But uh, Austrade um, has had different functions over time,、um, but the, in the current form, we have four basic functions. So we are the Australian government's trade promotion agency, and that means that we help Australian companies who are looking to export from Australia to overseas markets, exporting goods and services, and services are increasingly important in、yep. the Australian economy. Um, secondly, we are involved in, or we are the lead agency, in fact, for、um, investment attraction. So our mandate there is to work in line with five priorities, which are defined by the government of the day,、mm. um, to attract productive foreign direct investment into Australia. So we are not interested in hot money or short-term investments or purely financial investments. We are. Interested in and working hard to attract investments into Australia that create jobs and growth and economic opportunity in Australia. Right.、Um, the third function we have is in the education space, working closely with our colleagues at the Department of Education and Training.、Uh, we work to promote Australian education internationally. Australia has a very strong record in international education. We、yeah. have a very strong.、Um, Cohort of international students studying in our country and benefiting from our world-class education system. Austrade's role is promoting that capability throughout the world. We support、uh, registered training organisations in Australia, licensed under the CRICOS scheme,、yep. um, and we work with those institutions and also their agents in market to encourage students to come and study、mm. in Australia. 
The fourth function we have um, is relatively new. It's around four years that we have had the, the Australian Federal Government's tourism policy function. Okay. Within Australia, it's something a little bit different for Austrade in that we have a policy role there. Um, the tourism division of Austrade is the, the federal government agency that coordinates all the different levers and factors that um, influence the tourism sector in Australia. And tourism, of course, for Australia is a, an absolute bedrock industry. Depending on how you measure it, it is usually our biggest services export industry, contributing a huge amount of money to the Australian economy. In fact, on the latest measures, the contribution of tourism has exceeded $100 billion. All of those areas seem mm. tailor-made for the, for, the, for the Chinese economy. Export, mm. investment, education, tourism, four, four areas where the Australia-China relationship is really going from strength to strength. Um, thinking about exports, firstly, for an SME that's export-ready but hasn't yet dipped its toes into the China market, obviously hears about the opportunities over here, What's the best way for them to take their first steps into China? It's a good question, James. I think, you know, the, the, the first thing to do for Australian companies before they go anywhere near the airport is to undertake as much research as they possibly can okay. um, to understand whether the product or the service that they wish to export is already available in the Chinese market, what sort of price points there may be for, for that product, um, what sort of demand there may be, and how you may need to adapt your product or your service to compete in the Chinese market. Because the Chinese market is, is very different to Australia or Western markets. Um, it's, you know, even within Asia, you would say it's unique and it has many defining characteristics that are different to other markets in Asia. Yeah. Um, so desktop research is obviously a great place to start. Um, Dr. Google, as we call it, can, can obviously give you a lot of information and other search engines. Yeah. Um, but also I think it's important to, you know, to break through the language barrier. Um, and this can actually be done pretty effectively in Australia, bearing in mind that we have more than one million people in Australia of Chinese heritage. Yeah. Um, there are many um, resources available, you would say, in Australia. Um, people who can speak or read Chinese, who can help with doing local language research through Baidu and other Chinese language um, search engines. But also I think an underappreciated resource is Chinese students in Australia because okay, Chinese yeah. students are generally people who've come to Australia in their late teens, early 20s, they're plugged into the zeitgeist of China, they usually are travelling back and forward and conversing with people in China, so um, perhaps more than people who've grown up in Australia, they actually are really your focus group or your target market um, for, for products into Australia. Many of those students um, want to work while they are studying at university, and of course students in Australia can work for 20 hours per week, yep. um, so I would think many of those Chinese students in Australia are fantastic employees to take on in, in a company as you're trying yeah. to understand whether your product will work. And a great opportunity for them too to do an internship and you know get more integrated into Australian society and Australian work life. So you know on both ends it's it's such a win-win situation. It's, it's a win-win and I'm, I'm often surprised that, that that enormous resource on our doorstep can can easily be, be overlooked. Mm. Um, the second step I would say is really to focus on your intellectual property um, and for, for the vast majority of companies there are IP assets at stake when you're looking at exporting. 
Um, now, there, of course, are many cliches about IP protection in China um, and, and problems in that regard. Um, I, I won't so much go into those, but mm. I, I think that it is fair to say there are reasons to be cautious. Um, but it's also important to note that Chinese intellectual property law, IP law, does have some significant differences to Australia, um, particularly around what's called first-to-file protection that's given for, for different aspects of IP um, in China, which is different to Australia's system. I would refer uh, listeners to the Austrade website where we have some resources on IP protection, but even better to look at the website of IP Australia, which is the Australian government's um, intellectual property agency, um, for some really good resources to get you started on thinking about IP issues in China. Um, IP Australia has just recently appointed their first councillor here at the embassy in Beijing, but there is no substitute, and, and I'm sure he will say the same, there is no substitute for getting good legal advice. Do you think Australian companies need to be domestically successful in Australia and have a sense of brand recognition, or do you think they can, if they have a great idea that's perfect for the Chinese consumers, they can leapfrog the Australian market and go direct into China? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this phenomenon of companies that are called born global is, is not something that's new. I think it's it's a concept that's grabbed a lot of momentum in the last 20 years. Um, traditionally, Australian companies have probably focused on Silicon Valley and, and the US market yeah. um, for high-tech products. But I think for China, the Chinese market is so mature, um, so large and growing quickly. And, and China is a real early adopter. And some of the homegrown technology here is actually leaping ahead of anything that we see in, in the West. Yeah. Um, so I think it is possible for Australian companies to be born global and China to be their first market, even before domestic um, products. We actually see a lot of products coming out of Australia, particularly things such as infant formula um, and some other products that are actually not even sold sure. in the domestic market. They're produced in Australia, but they are 100% produced for export to, to China. After you've done your research, after you've considered your intellectual property, I think the third step yep. in the process is to talk to Austrade. And I would encourage listeners to talk to Austrade before you get on the plane. Um, Austrade has a network of 10 offices across China. We have a very experienced team of professionals on the ground here. But we all have telephones, we all have email, and actually we have some fantastic video conferencing software and so on. So we are very happy to engage with and talk with exporters before they get on the plane. Um, and I really see Austrade's fundamental role as helping reduce the cost and the risk involved in export for Australian companies. The best time we can do that is to have a conversation nice and early before you've planned your trip um, to talk or to offer some advice and also to talk about how Austrade can assist. Mm. When a company's coming to the market, Austrade offers um, very practical, um, very hands-on um, assistance and support in the market so we can help to identify potential customers or business partners for your product or service. We can help to arrange contact with those. We can even accompany um, exporters coming to the market. Yep. Um, we do provide some of those services on a fee-for-service basis in, in line with the Australian government's user pays philosophy. Um, but there is a range of advice and information that we offer free of charge, including some fantastic resources on our website, austrade.gov.au. Yep. Um, and I guess the final point I would make is um, not to underestimate China. Um, I would suggest to, to be very humble in any um, preconceived ideas you may have 
have about China. Mm. Um, this is a very advanced and sophisticated and fast-moving market. If you haven't been to China in the last one year or two years, you probably won't recognise the place the <laughs> yeah. next time you come, and maybe if you've never been. But um, people who, who are coming now and haven't been for a year or two talk about the, the um, share bicycles that you see everywhere, which have sprung up like mushrooms in the last year. Yeah. Um, the, the use of WeChat Pay and Alipay um, is something that has been around for a few years, but in the last two years has taken off incredibly to the point where you really can go through a week in China and not have not spend any money yeah. um, in terms of uh, notes coming out of your Action wallet, cash, but yeah. you're spending a lot of money through, through WeChat. So um, those types of changes are happening very quickly. There was a recent study um, from e-commerce consultancy HyperWallet that actually ranked China as the top of the established market category. So they looked at 36 different countries, including major Western markets like the US, UK and Australia. And China was ranked as the most advanced market in terms of e-commerce based on um, the dominance of, of um, e-commerce in the market, supporting payments infrastructure and logistics. Okay. Um, everyone who's been in China has seen and possibly been run down by one of these three-wheeler trucks delivering e-commerce. Um, the statistics you hear in the market are, are pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's safe to say e-commerce is here to stay. Yep. That presents some opportunities and some challenges for Australian companies. It's never been easier to, um, to travel between China and Australia. Since uh, the end of 2016, when we saw almost complete deregulation of the aviation market, um, we've seen continued strong growth in the number of flight connections between Australia and China. Um, we see new cities such as Qingdao and Xi'an and Chongqing and, and Chengdu and Shenzhen yep. having direct flights into more and more cities in Australia. Um, the figures I have, but I would say they're almost certainly wrong because there are new flights coming on um, yep. all the time, but around 134 flights per week between mainland China and Australia. It's, it's going to be more yeah, than that. Um, yeah. Two weeks ago, I attended the launch of, uh, of flights from uh, Guangzhou to Cairns. Um, soon I'm attending launch of flights from Zhengzhou to Melbourne. Now, many of your listeners may have not heard of Zhengzhou. Zhengzhou is the capital of Henan province, okay. which is the third most populous province in China. Right. Um, and why I'm particularly excited about Zhengzhou is it's actually designated as a global air freight logistics hub. Okay. Um, flying into Melbourne, which is Australia's number one uh, air freight logistics hub. So that sort of connectivity, I think, is really exciting for the market. Yeah, great. So... Coming back to the opportunities for Australian exporters, uh, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement is coming up on two years now. Um, how has CHAFTA changed the Australia-China business landscape? Um, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement is, is, I think, incredibly important. As you mentioned, James, it's um, been in force for almost two years. December 2017 will be two years. Um, the analysis we've undertaken is that in the first year, um, the utilisation rate of CHAFTA is around 85%. And okay. I know that you've done some, some work with your podcast about um, explaining to exporters how to take advantage of CHAFTA. Yep. Um, it is not automatic. You do have to go and get some paperwork filled out to, to get the tariff benefits. Yep. Um, for 85% of exports in both directions to have already been taking advantage of those um, those tariff reductions is actually pretty phenomenal. Yeah. I think it's uh, it's almost unheard of. Um, there's also an incredible um, resource, I would say, for, for exporters um, on the FTA portal, um, which is available on the DFAT website, so ftaportal.dfat.gov.au. Um, this website can help you find out the tariff 
and the codes for virtually any product that you want to export, not only to China, but also to Japan, Korea, and other free trade agreement markets. Yep. But we've, we've seen very strong growth uh, since CHAFTA came into force across a range of products. And it's, it's often easy and attractive to focus on the agricultural or food and beverage products, but we've seen actually some pretty spectacular figures there. Okay. So um, in the 12 months to September, we've seen wine sales to China grow by 56%. Um, to $740 million. And we're seeing China now making up 30% of Australian wine exports. Mm. And But also, I think, very excitingly, the number of Australian companies exporting has grown by 21%. Okay. And that's not all China, but I think China will make a contribution to that. Yep. Um, we have seen some of the trade diverted from Hong Kong directly into the main market, but... Uh, as someone who's worked in Hong Kong, I would also say Hong Kong is a fantastic market for wine. It's still the number one in terms of price per litre. Okay. Um, and, and we think, you know, the reduction in tariffs um, that we've seen under CHAFTA, um, originally from 14% and sometimes higher, um, that has directly contributed to, to the surge in interest in Australian wine. Mm. Um, the exports of Australian lobster, for example, in the first quarter of this year were uh, triple those of the year before. Yeah. And we've seen um, companies such as Geraldton Fisherman's Co-op um, really commit to the market, building infrastructure on the ground in different cities in China oh, to, right. to hold and bring fresh product into the market. I okay. think you could see those types of developments as directly flowing on from yeah. chapter. Milk powder, cherries, these are the other types of products. Uh, mangoes, abalone, fresh and frozen beef, um, different types of cheese, even stock feed products. Um, these products are all benefiting from, from cuts under CHAFTA. Um, Austrade and also our partners on the Chinese government, we've done a lot of work to promote CHAFTA. We've taken CHAFTA on the road far and wide, both in China and in Australia. So we have done a, a huge number of seminars um, in Australia, some of those with ACBC. Mm. We've done quite a few of them in, in many cities across China, partnering with um, Chinese government agencies, both nationally and locally, um, to raise awareness of CHAFTA. Um, we get a lot of interest and a lot of support from the Chinese government in that regard. Okay. What we tend to say about CHAFTA is it does not necessarily, or it's not necessarily about reducing the price to the end consumer in China because yep. the market has kind of shown what prices it can bear. Mm. But what CHAFTA, the advantage CHAFTA gives to Australian business is that it makes us a more attractive business partner for Chinese importers. Working with Australia as the tariffs reduce can be more profitable and more attractive for Chinese businesses. In excess of 130 other nations calling China's number one trading partner, does CHAFTA have an add-on effect of essentially legitimising Australia as a company that the Chinese government approves that China should do business with? No doubt about that. And I think it's it's easy to underestimate from Australia, where we probably um, specialise as a people in, in ignoring what the government tells us to do. Yeah. In China, people are very interested in, in um, you know, understanding the... They're very driven by, and, and it's not only in China, but they're very driven by the state of the relationship between China and that other country. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that Australia and China have... A very positive relationship it's a very big relationship with many dimensions to it sure it's not all plain sailing sure there are some controversies and some issues um, but overall the relationship is very strong very stable and chapter is a really important landmark that um, does give encouragement to chinese businesses to see australia as a preferred trading partner 
you mentioned that more than 130 countries have China as their number one trading partner, so we're not that unique in that regard. Mm. Um, but if I, I tend to look at it from the other perspective and say, who is Australia to China? Um, and in most years, we are number six or number seven trading partner for China, oh, okay, um, which yeah. is, is really important yeah. to note because, you know, relatively, we are a much smaller economy than China, um, but we have a very strong relationship. Um, there's a high degree of complementarity, as we say, between the Australian economy and the Chinese economy. Um, what we tend to export tends to be what China wants to buy, and what we tend to import and buy is a lot of that is what China produces. So the relationship um, you know, is very strong. Um, certainly mineral commodities um, are the strongest part of the relationship, but yep. I think uh, Chafta has helped to drive diversification and we see growing emphasis on services. Talking about some other changes that I think are, are resulting, I mean, it's it's probably too early to say it's definitive, but um, you know, hides and skins and leather products is another area of, actually that's quite easily underestimated in terms of the importance to Australian exporters. Mm. Um, tariffs uh, originally for those types of products, um, so sheepskins and, and other types of leather and, and hides, originally were 14%, but they will be eliminated completely by 2022. Yeah. And I've just seen this week some news in the Australian publications that um, or farmers in South Australia who once upon a time had sheep but have been growing grain for the last 25, 30 years, some of those farmers are now um, encouraged to come back into um, sheep production, for oh, right. example, um, driven by demand for wool, but also that's going to be driven by demand for meat and also for, for the skin. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we're seeing continued benefits. We will see continued dynamism in the Australian economy. And yeah. I think one of the benefits of, of our economy is that we are open, that we are dynamic, that we are responsive. Um, Chafter gives us opportunities that um, other countries would, would really knock down our door to have. Beyond agriculture, what other Australian products have achieved greater access to China as a result of Chafter? Yeah, I think it's one of the, the key features of the Chafter Agreement is that it was not only focused on agricultural products. Um, there's a heavy emphasis on services, um, but also manufactured exports are, are covered by it. Um, you know, Australia has some world-leading companies in areas such as medical technology. Yep. Um, cochlear is obviously a household name in Australia. Um, this was another technology that was benefited under CHAFTA. So the 4% tariff on hearing aids and implantable medical devices was immediately eliminated when CHAFTA came into force in mm. December 2015. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, in 2016, that's led to $87 million worth of exports of those types of products. Other types of companies uh, you know, include companies such as Anchor, which is a specialised machinery building company. They talked about um, their investment in R&D and their competitors principally come from Switzerland and Germany. Okay. So um, Germany is one country that does not have an FTA with, with China. And in some of those machine building products, every, um, every little cent saved um, contributes yeah, to definitely. increased competitiveness. I would encourage listeners to have a look at the Austrade website where we have some fantastic short video case studies. Um, of some real exporters talking about their experience. Yep. Um, Woods Bagot, a well-known Australian architecture company, has been doing very well in the market. Another case study is a company called Superior Jetties out of the Gold Coast, okay. um, which, as the name would suggest, uh, make jetties. Um, and they have electric pedestals um, in their marinas, and some of the welded steel products that are involved 
uh, included involve very high precision welding that can only be done in Australia. Okay. So those types of products need to be imported into China from Australia. Right. So there are a range of manufacturing companies that benefit under the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Export products weren't the only beneficiary of CHAFTA, with uh, unique access being given to Australian services. Finance, legal, education, tourism and aged care services now enjoy unique access to the China market. Are we seeing Australian businesses take advantage of this access? Absolutely. One of the, the key focuses for the government in concluding chapter was around the services economy. The Australian economy, um, many people around the world think we are all about mining and agriculture, but yep. actually our economy is 70% services and some of our biggest industries include things such as uh, education, financial services, um, tourism, legal, etc. So Australian companies have been uh, seeking to leverage Shafter. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the companies that have come into the market have been inspired by Shafter, but not necessarily kind of following dot dot to dot on the Shafter rules. But yeah. um, in line with what we discussed earlier, I think in areas such as aged care or engineering or architecture, I think Shafter has given a big imprimatur to Australian companies to be seen as a partner of choice. Okay. The Australian aged care sector, for example, is, is very well recognised in China for our very strong and long-term regulatory model, which makes us quite unique, and also for our success in deploying you know, a system that's not perfect, but a system that I think is very effective in delivering high-quality aged care for many people. Yep. So we've seen strong interest in both investment by Chinese companies into Australian companies looking for their expertise, but also partnerships. Now, those partnerships are not always straightforward because you tend to have a company on the Chinese side that is enormous, that might have 50 or 100,000 employees, and even the biggest companies on the Australian side here may only have a couple of thousand employees. So there's yeah. a little bit of uh, um, uh, a disparity in size. But what we've seen, and, and Austrade's been working in this area intensively in the last two or three years, um, is a very strong desire to partner Australian companies that are, un are aware that they've got some very unique know-how and intellectual property and are very interested in coming into the Chinese market. Um, the Chinese uh, demographics have been changing in the recent years. They are facing a, a situation where um, aged care demand will become increasingly large over the next decade in particular and yep. going forward. But also the ability and the willingness to pay for that aged care exists. Perhaps not all the pieces are yet put in place, um, but there is a lot of desire. And we are starting to see you know, joint ventures or other forms of cooperation between Australian aged care companies and Chinese partners. Now, you probably say that they don't tick every box to say that's exactly um, a chapter outcome, mm. but there's no doubt, and Chinese companies tell us this, and Australian companies tell us this, that it is chapter that's made them want to talk really? to each other okay. and have that initial discussion. Um, you can probably say similar things in areas such as architecture, um, in legal services, uh, again, I would say inspired by, there are still some issues to work through in terms of recognising qualifications in China, um, but we've been privileged to be involved in supporting cooperation between, say, commercial arbitration associations in Australia and China. So the area of how um, international complex legal disputes are resolved, not through the court system, but through voluntary commercial arbitration. Australia and China have begun very intensive cooperation in mm. that sphere. And the timing really couldn't be better for the transition that the Chinese economy is making from one that was export-driven to now one that's becoming more about reliant on the consumer within China and 
developing professional services. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the Chinese economy is transitioning away from the successful model of the last 30 years, which yeah. has been very heavy on, on capital investment um, and infrastructure development towards a more services um, and more consumption-led economy. Now, I'm not an economist. I'll leave those forecasts for, for, for um, greater experts. But one of my colleagues does say, um, noting how well our iron ore export, exports are continuing to do, that yep. you obviously need a lot of steel to make all the coffee machines for the coffee shops <laughs> yeah. that are springing up across the country. Um, but Australia also has a lot of expertise that is relevant in those sectors, sure. um, particularly, yeah. and I would highlight the training side of things and the education side of things. Okay. Um, education and tourism are really key planks of the China-Australia relationship, um, and they work hand in hand. So education and tourism do tend to feed off each other. Um, sometimes people will come to Australia as a tourist for the first time and understand that it's a great country um, with, with a lot of advantages and a very high level of development, a great place to send their children to study or perhaps themselves to study. Yep. Um, on the other hand, sometimes the students go first and the parents come behind to visit their kids and go, this is a great place for tourism. So those two um, relationships do tend to, to, um, to go hand in hand. Services as a proportion of world trade is now at a high of 22% and continuing to grow. So okay. I think those, yep. those services um, concessions that are built into the high quality agreement of mm. CHAFTA yep. um, are important but also the inbuilt agenda, which includes a review of the services aspects of CHAFTA, which is something that we are hoping to kick off soon, following the agreement in March of this year when Premier Li Keqiang visited mm. Australia. Great. So, Dan, mm. you touched on how tourism has a knock-on effect. Would you mind telling me more about how tourism plays a role in the Australia-China relationship? Absolutely. Tourism um, is, is, I think, one of the most exciting aspects of the China-Australia relationship. Um, as I mentioned earlier, tourism now contributes over $100 billion to the Australian economy. And China is um, already for a couple of years the number one source of tourism spending. Mm. So now Chinese tourism spending in Australia contributes over $9 billion into the economy. And that's forecast to reach $26 billion um, by the middle of the next decade. Okay. Um, China, we think during the current year, will become our number one source of tourists. Um, currently, the number of tourists is around 1.2, 1.3 million. And that hasn't happened by mistake. There's been actually a number of steps that the government has taken to encourage and support the development of the tourism industry. Um, one of the key steps was the in December 2016, concluding um, the most liberal air services agreement China's done with a major economy, essentially removing all capacity restrictions on flights between Australia and China. Due to that air services agreement, we're very excited about the potential for Chinese people living in any one of the 130 cities that have one million or more people to, to come to visit Australia. Yep. The Australian government has also streamlined and reformed the visa process, making it much easier for Chinese people to visit Australia. So now Chinese travellers can apply online for their visas, they can apply in Chinese language, and frequent travellers to Australia can also receive a 10-year frequent traveller visa, which has made it a lot easier. Mm, okay. And the final piece of the puzzle is um, investment into Australian tourism infrastructure with the continued growth in international tourism, not only from China. In fact, it is important to note that Japanese tourism, American tourism and, and European tourism, varying by country, have actually all been growing strongly and look forward to 
we look forward to continued growth. So in Australia, we do continue to need to build more hotels, to build more um, shopping centres, to build more entertainment and uh, things for tourists to do in our country. A number of the state governments and their local, partner, local government partners have worked really hard to improve things such as Chinese language signage at venues. Just this morning, we had a meeting with the China National Tourism Administration and okay. their vice chairman was extremely complimentary about his experience earlier this year on his first visit to Australia. Oh, he really? said there was signage in Chinese all the way through yeah. the airport and he said most of the advertising billboards were also Chinese as well. So, um, you know, I think, I think the, um, the tourist experience um, is improving. Um, I think uh, in terms of hotels, our biggest issue is actually availability, particularly around the key Chinese um, holidays. Yep. If they, as in 2017, if they coincide with Australian school holidays, it's very difficult and very expensive to get hotels in some of our major cities. Okay. So we, in the Australian government at Austrade, we continue to work hard to encourage more Chinese investment into building tourism infrastructure, particularly hotels. But I think you're right, um, we do need to have more restaurants and attractions and um, places where Chinese tourists can go and spend their money. Mm, great. Um, what about education? Um, education is also really fundamental to the relationship. The latest data from the ABS shows that international education contributed around about $28 billion to the Australian economy in the last financial year, yep. which was a 16% increase, a pretty significant increase for, for what you would consider a very mature sector. China is and continues to be our number one source country for international students, accounting for around 30% of all international student enrolments. Um, making about 39% in higher education and around about 50% of international um, student enrolments in schools. Mm. And the two-way flows between Australia and China are actually very balanced as well, considering the relative size of our student populations. So there are approximately 160,000 Chinese students studying in Australia, yep. um, but according to the Chinese Ministry of Education, there's around about 5,000 Australian students studying in China. Mm. Bear in mind the, the uh, relative sizes of the, the population. Yeah. And China is also the second most popular destination for Australian students studying abroad under the new Colombo plan. Mm. Um, and, you know, I've seen that with my own eyes. I am continually running to Australian students around Beijing who've come here under new Colombo plan or even under their own steam because they want to study in Beijing. They want to um, become China literate. They want to improve their language skills um, and understand this fascinating and complex country. So Chafter also touched on the education sector. Um, in December 2016, the first anniversary of the entry into force of Chafter, yep. uh, China listed an additional 68 Australian private higher education institutions um, who are all registered in the Australian system. They were listed on the a key Ministry of Education study overseas website. So we hope that more Australian education providers will um, share in and provide services to uh, Chinese students. And, and there's something quite significant about how that, how that website works in China. I think it's difficult from the Australian perspective to have a comparison, but from my understanding, it essentially vouches for foreign tertiary institutions that Chinese students could study at. Absolutely, James, you're absolutely on the money there. So those 68 new institutions were in addition to the 105 institutions that were already on the website. So the website, as you said, is the Chinese government um, website that is intended to provide Chinese students and employers with guidance about the quality and the fraud assurance issues when they're making decisions about the institutions. And the vast majority of Chinese students, the latest figures we have are from 20, 2013, but it was 88% of students at that time, 
chose to study at institutions that were listed on those websites. Okay, so yeah. increasing the number of institutions on there is increasing and growing the pie in terms of opportunities for Australian mm. registered training organisations. Okay, Dan, so we've covered exports, we've covered services. I guess the third arm of the free trade agreement is how it's changed investment into Australia. So how, how has CHAFTA impacted Chinese foreign direct investment back home? So um, CHAFTA contains a number of provisions on Chinese investment into Australia that are embedded into the CHAFTA as a treaty, but also into Australian law under those. I think it's also fair to say that CHAFTA came at a time when Chinese international investment has been growing quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, so the, the growth we've seen in, in Chinese investment into Australia um, it's a little bit chicken, e chicken and egg, but as we talked about earlier, um, I think the chapter also um, gave Australia a lot of impetus and a lot of imprimatur from the Chinese government. Mm. So some of the most important provisions to note is that for Chinese private companies, the threshold for investment into Australia is over $1 billion now. Um, it, it is indexed, so it slightly moves up year by year. Yep. Um, so what this means is that private Chinese companies investing into Australia do not require FERB approval for transactions below $1 billion. Yep. Um, there are some exceptions to that, and they are spelled out in the treaty, um, including media companies, but also um, particularly important for, for the government right now. Um, agricultural land um, and uh, agribusinesses have much lower thresholds. Okay. $15 million for agricultural land and 87 or so indexed for agribusinesses. Agri those um, stipulations are hardwired into the treaty with some indexation on some of them. The other point to note is that for state-owned enterprises, not only for China, but state-owned enterprises from all countries, um, are all, all transactions are screened by the Foreign Investment Review Board. Okay. So foreign government investors from all countries continue to have complete screening. Earlier this year, the Chinese State Council put the brakes on Chinese spending on overseas property development in Australia. Are we feeling the effect of this in the Australian market? So a couple of things to say on that. I mean, firstly, Austrade, we're not involved in promoting real estate investment in Australia, but obviously yep. we understand that it is a, um, is a topic of particular interest. Um, earlier this year, when the Foreign Investment Review Board um, released their annual report, they had some, um, some information in there about the impact of Chinese investment on housing prices in Australia, which I would encourage people to, to read. Um, essentially the conclusion is the impact is nowhere near as big as, as it might be believed from the media. And I was gratified to see a couple of weeks ago there was a, a further report um, by BIS Oxford Economics essentially reaching the same conclusion. Um, nevertheless, um, in the budget earlier this year, the government did introduce some, some additional restrictions on foreign ownership or foreign investment into um, real estate, notably that for new developments in the past, they've been able, able to be sold 100% overseas. Now they can only be sold 50% overseas, okay. which is actually going back to an arrangement we had in place um, around about 10, 15 years ago. Um, and also a, a range of other measures such as an annual charge for foreign owners where residential property is, is not occupied. Okay. We've also seen some state governments introduce differential um, stamp duties as well. Um, but for Austrade, our role is really focused on what we'd call productive foreign direct investment, so investment that it goes into creating jobs, creating wealth, um, and, and spurring our economic development mm. in Australia. Okay. Um, we work towards five um, priorities. Those priorities are defined by the government, um, so that includes food and agribusiness, major economic infrastructure such as um, 
ports and roads and, and um, airports and tollways and those sorts of things. Mm. Um, tourism infrastructure, which I've spoken about earlier, principally hotels, but as, as that um, continues to develop into other attractions, um, into the minerals and energy sector, so continuing to support the, the um, growth and development of the Australian mining and energy sector, which as we know is a key export industry and China is our key um, customer there so it does make a lot of sense to partner yep and the fifth area is more broad it's what we call advanced manufacturing services and technology um, this includes everything from you know science and, and startups and research um, through to advanced manufacturing also things such as automotive we've seen successful Chinese investments into for example Australian automotive parts suppliers Chinese investment has become a thorny issue in Australia, but raising foreign capital has always been vital to Australia's economic development. How can this gulf between the Australian community and Chinese investors be bridged? I think it's um, important that we continue to be focused on the, on the benefits and the value of foreign investment in Australia. And I think everyone in government is very mindful of the sensitivities that, that we do face. Um, you know, I think the government is mindful that the, the Foreign Investment Review Board mechanism we have um, involves screening and it allows the government to make um, decisions that we hope will be predictable but also create, allow some sort of um, last resort mechanism there for, for transactions that may be too sensitive. Yep. In a sense, one of the beauties, I think, of our system is that the ultimate decision maker is the treasurer, um, who's a member of parliament, therefore accountable to the community. So the Foreign Investment Review Board analyses cases and provides advice, but on the most sensitive cases, the ultimate decision maker is a member of parliament who is accountable to the electorate, which I think is actually a pretty unique system. And um, certainly talking to some of our colleagues from other countries around the world, I think they're quite envious of the sophisticated and well-established um, uh, screening system that we have. Mm. And it sh should be emphasised it's a system for screening. It, we don't have blacklists, we don't have whitelists, um, unlike other countries, including China. Yeah. So we are open by default. We are open for business encouraging a foreign direct investment. Um, where it's not against Australia's interests. And, you know, I think the government's track record um, on that over, over decades really stacks up to, to scrutiny. Um, you know, in, in the last 15 years or so, we've only seen a handful of, of rejections. Each one of them has been high profile and has generated a lot of press at the time. Um, but it's also the fact that those rejections are very rare that mm. makes, them, makes them an exception. Of course, in the last few years, we've seen an intensifying of the pace of investment from China. But again, almost all investments into Australia have been approved by the government in that time. There's particular sensitivity, obviously, around real estate and the government through some changes to the rules. And also, um, I think the fact that that, that function has been moved from the Foreign Investment Review Board into the Australian Taxation Office to cope with the volume, but also to, to look at um, any other issues that, that may be mm. around that, allowing the FERB process to really function on business investment. Okay, Dan, so we've yeah. definitely covered a lot of ground today and thanks mm. a lot for your time. Um, just as a final question, what are you looking forward to in the next five to ten years about the Australia-China relationship? Well, James, I think it's a really exciting time for everyone who's involved in, in the Australia-China relationship. As I said earlier, you know, it, it's a very big 
very complex, very diverse relationship. You can never stop learning about this relationship yeah. um, and you can never stop working on it. It's like, you know, uh, it's like a marriage, I think. You know, you have to um, put effort into it and, and work on it every day and continue to communicate. When you think you may understand, um, you know, each other's positions, you do need to just confirm that and, and, and rethink it. Yeah. Um, I, I look forward to, you know, continuing growth in trade under the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Um, expanding market access for Australian products into the China market over time, continued growth in the tourism sector and the education sectors, which I think are particularly exciting. But also as China's economy moves into more consumption and more services, some of the smart and innovative Australian services and technologies coming in there to improve um, well-being in China for Chinese people and to improve um, Australia's quality of life and our experience. So I think it's a really exciting time. Um, I'm really proud that, you know, more and more people in Australia think a lot about China and are engaged with the relationship. I'm certainly encouraging my kids to learn uh, learn Putonghua as, yep. as one of the most important life skills going forward. So I think it's a, it's a really exciting time. Mm, excellent. Well, thanks a lot for your time today, Dan. My thanks to Dan for his time, and I should note that as our discussion took place back in October 2017, the flights between Australia and China he mentioned has since skyrocketed to almost 200 per week. And the latest data from the Australian government now has two-way trade between Australia and China at more than $170 billion. For any links to Austrade or China business case studies that Dan mentioned, please visit this episode's show notes at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts for the relevant links. My thanks also to Austrade for their support of this podcast. And as always, if there's a friend, colleague or client that's interested in Australia-China relations, please pass on the podcast. For any media inquiries, you can reach me at james.scullen at acbc.com.au. Until next time, 再见.